Today on the podcast, Romans chapter 6, the first part. I think we're going up to verse 22 today. Welcome to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. Welcome back. Sorry about the crustiness in my voice. I think I'm coming down with something here. But uh, today on the show, we're going to be in Romans chapter 6. We're going to make it up to verse 21. And then we're going to get stuck at verse 21. Uh, But uh, with that, let's just go ahead and jump right in. Today, we're going to be going through the book of Romans. Uh, We are currently at chapter 6. So what has... Is that nice or what? I got slides. Danielle made me some slides last night, really late. My wife is awesome. Sorry, guys, I have the best wife here. Anyway, um, (laughs) those look good. Uh, Anyway, so we're in Romans chapter 6. Lots of stuff has happened already. Uh, Romans, written by Paul, uh, he wrote it to this young church in Rome, and nobody, it was Rome is a pivotal point for the gospel to go forth from. This is uh, the, the empire that was ruling at the time. Uh, they had conquered most of the world. Their language had spread far and wide. Of course, everybody knows about the Roman roads. And so it was the perfect place. Uh, in fact, a lot of people say that that time and place was the perfect time for the gospel to go forth, um, like never before. And so... None of the uh, big boys of the faith have been there to Rome yet. And so Paul is writing this letter, and it's amazing because it is the most thorough uh, exposition of what the gospel looks like and what it looks like to be a Christian, okay? And so he starts off with trying to prove, uh, not trying, he flat out proves, that not a one of us are saved. He starts with the Gentiles. Who are they? Adam tells me that means gentle reptiles, but actually the Gentiles are us, okay? It's all of us who are non-Jews, right? And we see that we're not saved, okay? That's obvious. Then then he moves to the Jews. These are the guys who have had God's law. They're the ones who have been sacrificing to God in the temple and have been uh, doing all these things, following the Mosaic law, eating according to the Mosaic dietary guidelines, um, doing all these things as far as being circumcised, are they saved? Can they work their way to heaven? We find out Paul's very emphatic. No, they can't. There's, and he finally makes it to a conclusion. There's no one good. No, not one. All have fall, fallen short of the glory of God. Amen? That means all of us. None of us can save ourselves through good works. Good. We've got a foundation laid here. And then he gets into the gospel. He gets into this big word called justification. Okay? Again, justification, an easy way to remember it, might be a little oversimplified, is justified never sinned. Okay? At that moment that you pray to God and you admit you're a sinner and that you can't save yourself and you trust in him. You know, Christ, he died on that cross paying the penalty that we owe. Okay? We have a sin debt. We have offended a holy God. Christ paid that penalty for us. 
Okay? The moment you trust in him, you're justified. Just as if you had never sinned. If you get trampled by a herd of elephants later this afternoon, it happens. Happened to me yesterday. Um, Stuff like that, you know, if you die sometime this afternoon after trusting in Christ, you're saved. You're going to go to heaven. So uh, he just finished talking about justification. He spends a couple chapters talking about that. Now he's moving into a subject called sanctification. And sanctification is one of those, another one of those big words um, that a lot of people get this confused. A lot of cults get started because they mix up justification and sanctification. Kind of getting the cart before the horse. Sanctification is a process. It's a process that God, uh, uh, his Holy Spirit infiltrates our our whole being, points out sins in our lives and convicts us of them. We start feeling a little dirty about it and we repent and we change. Okay, And the Holy Spirit helps us through that process. And so we're all in that process, right? None of us are perfect except for me. Um, and, and, okay, uh, yeah, and so we're all in this process of sanctification, and so that's what Paul is going to start getting into today. So everybody open up your Bibles, Romans chapter 6, verse 1, um, and we'll start there, uh, and, and so Paul's going to start right off here, and he's going to, as, as we go through this, we're going to almost finish chapter 6. I'm going to start, or uh, stop at a very awkward spot. Um, and you'll understand when we get there. But uh, he, there's, there's going to be two questions, two big questions that he's going to answer today. And regular Pauline style, this whole book's been this way, where he'll anticipate or rather recite a question that he's been given concerning the faith, and then he'll answer it. Okay? And there's going to be a two of those that are really similar. In fact, you, you read them both and you kind of feel like they're the same thing. But if you read them carefully, there's a distinction between the two. Um, And so, here we go with the first one. He says, uh, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And so, he starts right off. What shall we say then? Another way of saying that is, uh, what do we conclude from all this? As in, he he actually, uh, he has finished talking about justification. So what can we conclude from all of this? Being saved by grace alone through faith alone. What do we conclude from this? Shall we continue in sin? That phrase, continue in in sin, uh, it is in the present active tense, uh, which is indicating that it is basically describing a habitual practice of sin. So what should we conclude from this? Do we continue to practice sin um, so that grace may abound? And of course, he's going to answer that here in a second. Um, basically that, you know, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Uh, We talked about that last time, right at the end of the last teaching. I stopped also at an awkward spot. I overlapped into this chapter a little bit because that is a logical conclusion. Once you realize that you're saved by grace alone, uh, it's a logical conclusion to say, well, wait a minute. If, If I'm totally saved by grace, then why not sin more so that God has to give me more grace, which makes God look that much more awesome, right? Logical, but not correct. And so Paul goes on here, uh, and he says uh, in verse 2, skipping a page here, he says, certainly not, um, which is a very strong 
phrase. Uh, in Greek, it's, it's, it's the strongest Greek idiom that is uh, for rebutting a statement. Okay? And he's basically saying, you know, God forbid, certainly not. It's, it's expressing a sense of outrage that somebody would even have the nerve to ask that question. And I'm sure he's been asked it, right? He says, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Um, so he brings up dying to sin. That's so weird. And it's one of those concepts that it's, it's kind of awkward for us Christians. What does that mean? Dying to sin. Well, in short, and we're going to spend a good chunk of today looking at what that means to die to sin. But in short, we're not controlled by sin anymore. Okay? Uh, and we're to consider ourselves as having died to sin. Um, God has, at that moment when we trusted in Christ, the Holy Spirit has come into us, and now we no longer have a drive to sin. We still do, but we don't have that full drive like we used to. And we'll elaborate more on that as we go. And so what does Paul do? He moves into verse 3. He's going to give us an illustration of uh, um, what he's talking about here, dying to sin. He's going to use baptism, which is kind of interesting. Uh, some of you might know where he's going to go here. So verse 3, he says, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in the newness of life. Okay, what in the world is going on here? So, baptism, traditionally and nowadays, should include full immersion. It's, it's an illusion that goes all the way back to uh, Judaism, really, to the roots of our faith. Uh, they would do what's called mikvahs. And it was symbolizing somebody going into the grave. Okay, if you can imagine the water, the horizontal line of the water, and just imagine it's like it's the dirt of the ground. And you go in the grave, and then you come out being born again. You know, you're... You're a zombie. No, just kidding. But <laughs> you come forth from this grave in newness of life, right? And, and they would do that. Even the Jews with the, with the mikvahs, they would do these um, when a boy would come of age. They would do it when it was time to go to war. You would, you would do a mikvah, and then you would go, okay? They would do it during marriage. That was part of uh, one of the, the, the things that would precede a marriage. You're dying to your old self, and you're being born again into a new self. Does that make sense? So that's the illustration he's painting. And, you know, even uh, when Nicodemus, he, he went to Jesus at night, uh, and uh, John 3, 3, and Jesus tells him, uh, unless, he says, uh, 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 unless one is born again, they would not see the kingdom of God. Sorry, I saw you looking at the screen. I was like, what? Did I make a slide for that? No, I didn't. Um, Unless one is born again, they will not see the kingdom of God. That's actually kind of, a, it's another illustration of somewhat of the same concept, guys. Because if one is born again by necessity, that former existence must kind of come to an end. Does that make sense? He's going to elaborate more on this as we go. But um, 
Moving on here, verse 5. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Okay, so we're united together in the likeness of his death, and we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Remember, I think it was last time that we talked about types and shadows, right? Or was that the time before? I can't remember. But types and shadows, what are those again? They're all throughout the Bible. There's, there's situations where God will use a person's uh, uh, life. He'll use various ceremonies. He'll even use temple uh, 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 furniture, different situations. And they will be almost like a perfect illustration of a New Testament teaching. And one of those that I, an example I gave last time, I gave several. Uh, one of them that's kind of obvious that everybody gets is the, is the brazen serpent. We have this situation uh, where Moses puts a serpent on a pole and he raises it up to the people and then whoever looks upon this serpent um, will be saved from the serpent's bite. Likewise, Christ was lifted up and those who look upon him, trust in him and his saving work are saved from the serpent's bite, if you will. Sin. Types and shadows. Well, there's one here too. Uh, in Christ's death and resurrection, it's a type and shadow that points towards uh, us a little bit in our walk with Christ, our justification. Um, for example, Christ on the cross, he was separated from the Father. You know, Father, why have you forsaken me? There was that moment when he had taken upon him the sins of the world and he was separated from the Father. Likewise, B.C., for us, before Christ, we were separated from the Father. Christ died for sin. We die, as we've just seen, we die to sin. Okay? Christ rose from the grave. Likewise, we rise in newness of life. And we're going to elaborate more on that as we go as well. Um, Christ is restored to the Father. We are restored to the Father after we trust in Christ, after our sins have been atoned for, they've been covered over. And then Paul says that our old man was crucified with him. Okay, that's not referring to our dad. <laughs> the, the old man was crucified with him. No, what is that talking about? Well, that word old, uh, it's not talking about old in years. It's more of speaking of, uh, it's carrying with it the idea of worn out, useless, okay? And so what we're looking at here is that old, worn out, useless part of us, our unregenerate self, okay? There's another big word. My wife hates when I use big words and I don't define them. Thank you for flagging me on that. Unregenerate, that means Basically, unrepentant, somebody who's obstinate, that's hard for me to say, obstinate in their sins. They just refuse to repent, okay? Such were us at one point, right? Our unregenerate self, uh, that unregenerate old self was crucified with Christ. Um, that 
the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin. He, uh, as we continue through chapter 6, a little bit now, but we're going to, once we get into the second question section, he's really going to go after this word slave. He's going to be thrown around. We're either slaves of our sin or we're slaves of righteousness. We're slaves of God. It's, it gets pretty intense. Okay, so, so we're going to see a lot about that now, and I'm actually going to allow some of that uh, to carry over into next time too. Um, but anyway, <clears throat> he compares it to slavery, which is, that's a pretty big deal. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, um, slide, that slide doesn't exist? Yeah, because I didn't mean it to exist. Anyway, um, <laughs> anyway, Second uh, Corinthians chapter five verse seventeen. It says, uh, and this is Paul writing again. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So there again, you see that same idea. We're a new creation. We are something new in Christ. When we have trusted in Him, our sins have been covered. Something new is happening. And, um, you know, you, you think back at the way you were, and you consider yourself now, now we don't have that same drive to sin. Does that make sense? We now have a drive towards righteousness. Um, when you consider back B.C., before we were slaves, or before we were slaves, when we were slaves to sin, before we were saved, um, you didn't have a, a drive towards righteousness. Not until right before you got saved when the Holy Spirit was clearly working in you. Uh, you didn't. No, you, you didn't care to. You just you wanted to do your thing. You lived for yourself, uh, and you enjoyed your sin. You didn't have any desire to live for God or righteousness. Um, but now we're new creations. Uh, Ezekiel, chapter 36, verses 24 through 27. Sweet, there it is. Um, God is speaking to Israel here. But this is another one of those really cool illustrations. It's, it's kind of a type and shadow. Uh, it, it mirrors what happens to us when God calls us out of the world. It says, "For I," and it's speaking to Israel, okay? God's speaking to Israel. For I will take you from among the nations. I will gather you out of all countries and bring you into, my, into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be, sorry, you will keep my judgments and do them. And, you know, it's just like us. Once we trust in Christ, he draws us out of the sinful world that we find ourselves in, right? We still live in the world, but suddenly we're not of the world anymore. He's pulling us out, and um, he cleanses us of our sins. He covers them over with his blood, if you will. He gives us a new heart and a new spirit. Um, He gives us new desires. Suddenly we want to do righteous things. Uh, the idols in our life suddenly don't have that same luster. They start falling away. Okay? Um, and suddenly we have a, a desire to please our Father. So, really cool illustration. Uh, Paul goes on in verse 7. Back to Romans, by the way. Verse 7. Uh, For he who has died 
has been freed from sin. Okay, so we've been freed from sin. There's, it doesn't have dominion over us anymore. And, and, there's, and there's three ways that this kind of happens, okay? One, we don't have the same level of joy when we sin, right? Remember back in the day, you, you had so much fun? Suddenly when you sin now, after ba- being saved, you, that joy is just not there anymore. It's not really that fun. You think it's going to be fun when you go into it, and I'll explain a little bit more of that as we go, uh, but you think you're going to have fun, and it really it doesn't have that same luster anymore. Uh, then after we sin, we feel convicted of our sins. Suddenly we get that sick feeling in our stomach and you know and you don't even want to look to the sky for a little while and you're just feeling dirty and just sick over the whole thing right and then lastly God gives us his Holy Spirit to empower us to overcome we have the ability to overcome sin Um, I'm not saying we do it every time but we do have that ability Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13 And and guys, on this side of heaven, no one's going to pull it off. Ain't going to happen. But God has empowered us. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So, we get hit with some pretty heavy temptations sometimes. And God has placed within us the ability to overcome. We usually don't, but he's given us that ability. And he provides for us ways to escape. And so we, we need, and I want to challenge you guys, and, and for myself too, we need to see those opportunities for escape. we got to realize that when these temptations hit us, there's a way out, and we should find it. God is not going to tempt us beyond what we can bear. So, um, you know, in fact, uh, 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 Paul, for example, in Romans chapter uh, 7, verse 19, Paul struggled with sin too. This is like mega saint, right? (laughs) He's a super Christian. Paul, he had issues. Um, He even says, for the good that I I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. And then a few verses later, he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Okay, so even Paul struggled with this. And, uh, you know, we're not expected to be perfect. We're not going to reach that state. But we are called to fight this, and we are called to try and overcome. Okay, God is calling us to righteousness. And uh, it's not easy. It's absolutely not easy. Um, so moving on to verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer having dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives He lives to God. All right, so Christ died once, okay, and then he rose from the dead. Likewise, we died to sin once. That sin sin nature is dead, okay? We're still tempted by it, but again, it's been put to death. 
Something else he says here, uh, he died to sin once for all. Um, little correction, there's something I said last time I taught that just didn't settle right with me the way I said it, and I just, I kind of want to correct it a little bit. I was, I was addressing, some people will use this scripture actually, and there's another one in chapter 5 where it says that uh, something to the effect of Christ died for everyone's sin, and universalists, those who believe that everybody is saved, whether they're a Christian or not, you know, um, they'll teach that everyone's saved, and they'll use scriptures like that to prove their point, and um, I guess what I want to say here is that when it says he died for all sin, okay, uh, for everyone's sin, it's a gift that's offered to everybody, but not everybody accepts it, okay? So, so yeah, it's available to everybody, but a lot of people don't choose to accept that gift. So uh, Christ did die to our sins or for our sins. He, uh, he broke the penalty of sin, satisfying its legal demands on us. He also broke the power of death over us. Yes, our bodies are going to die, but a lot of times death in the New Testament is referring to eternal separation from God, as we're going to see again as we go a little bit further here. A lot of times when it mentions death, it's referring to eternal separation from God, and God has broke, or Jesus has broken that over us. So, uh, something else and I'm, and I'm famous for my, my rabbit trails, guys. Here comes a big one. <laughs> this, is, this is interesting, though, because it says right at the end of that, verse 10, it says, but the life that he, speaking of Jesus, lives, he lives to God. What in the world? I thought Jesus was God. How's he living to God? So wait a minute. Is Jesus God? And the Father is another God? Or is Jesus not God and the Father is God? And where's the Holy Spirit fit in all this? Right? It's probably a good time to just... We haven't done this in this church. I'm not sure. It's been a while. A long time. Maybe never. I'm not sure. But let's talk about the Trinity real quick. What is that? Okay? Because uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses. Joe's been witnessing to them quite a bit. Jehovah's Witnesses they see our faith as polytheism. Polytheism. Does that make sense to you? Poly, word part that means many. Theism, God, many gods. Okay? Polytics, many blood-sucking insects. No, sorry. <laughs> polytheism. They, they think that we believe in many gods. Right? And so they've modified the Bible to make Jesus out to look like Michael the Archangel and the Holy Spirit out to, to look more like electricity that flows out of an outlet, right? It's just a force. Use the force, Luke, kind of thing, okay? Mormons, on the other hand, have embraced this idea, and they're like, yeah, there's many gods. Jesus is God, the Father's God, and there's an infinite other number of gods that run their own planets. Islam looks at our faith, and they think we're a bunch of polytheists. Uh, they think that we believe that Jesus is God, the Father is another God, and they actually mix up the Holy Spirit with Mary because of some things that Muhammad wrote. Okay, so, so what's going on here? What does the Bible really say about this? Um, well, the Bible is very clear. There's only one God. Very clear. 
the verse that probably everybody would expect me to go to is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. It's, uh, the sh- I know, I didn't put it in the slides. It's uh, often referred to as the Shema, uh, Hero Israel, the Lord God, the Lord God is one. But I'm going to take you to a different one. We'll go to Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6. Uh, it says, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. What's going on there? It almost looks like there's uh, more than one here. I am the first, I am the last, beside me there is no God. Okay? So there is only one God. So what do we conclude from that? Is, so is Jesus and the Holy Spirit not God? Let's go a little bit further. Um, the Bible says that um, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all called God. Okay? Kind of fascinating when you go through. All three of them are called God. Um, Jesus, in John chapter 1, verse 1, it says of Jesus, uh, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we know that that word is referring to Jesus. If you go to John chapter 1, verse 14, it's very clear. They're talking about Jesus here. So, interesting, right? Fascinating. Uh, we also know things like, uh, for example, uh, Thomas. Doubting Thomas when he placed his, his hand in Jesus' wounds. Um, right away, what did he do? He fell down on his knees and he started worshiping, worshiping Jesus. Well, why is that important? Jesus didn't, like, pull him back up and say, stop it, you know, what are you doing? He didn't do that. Well, why is that important? Because to the Jews, worship belonged only to God. And the Bible's very clear about that. You worship God and you worship him alone. Jesus didn't stop him. That means that either Jesus is God or Thomas and Jesus were committing blasphemy. All right? So... There's actually uh, several scriptures, many scriptures throughout the New Testament. This is a very condensed version of looking at the Trinity, guys. You could easily spend probably three, maybe even four Sundays looking at all the different scriptures that tie this all together and make the case for what I'm making right now. So you get the condensed version. Um, Holy Spirit, what about the Holy Spirit? In Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, this is interesting. Um, it says, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Hold on to that. Lie to the Holy Spirit. And then he keeps going, and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself. While it remained, was it not your own land? And after it was sold, was it not your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? Here you go. You have not lied to men, but to God. Holy Spirit's called God. There's other scriptures, again, that will point at the Holy Spirit uh, being God as well. Um, So now we've seen scriptures that the Father obviously is God, Jesus is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. So now we just were stuck with this other problem, you know, are we we seeing polytheism or what? Um, Here's some other things about these three. uh, I, I have a list of attributes that all three of these share that are all attributes of God. Oh, that's so tiny. Um, And there's no way in the world you guys would be able to write these all down, but you have these magical things called cell phones if anybody wants to snap a photo for your your notes. Um, Also, I pulled this right off of my podcast website 
uh, youth apologetics training under the subtitle uh, uh, modalism, which is the idea that uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all three uh, manifestations of God. They're, they're all the same thing, which is a problem too, but we're not really getting into that. Anyway, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit share in the attributes of God. We already saw that all of them are called God, right? All of them are omnipresent. What does that mean? Omni, every, present. They're everywhere. So they're all said to be everywhere. Uh, they're omnipotent. What does that mean? Uh, all power, or I'm sorry, all knowing. That might be a, a, a mess up. That's no, okay. Um, and then all of them give life. All are called the creator. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is said to have created everything. The Holy Spirit is said to have created everything. Um, and the Father, obviously, is said to have created everything. Uh, all three of them are said to have resurrected Jesus. It says Jesus resurrected himself in one scripture. It says the Father resurrected him. And it also says the Holy Spirit did. Um, all three indwell believers. All three are eternal. And all three of them sanctify believers. So, they all share in those attributes of God. Well, here's the thing. So, are we dealing with three separate gods again? I mean, the scriptures were clear. There's only one God. So, what is going on here? They're also, next slide, uh, they're three distinct persons. Um, you know, you see scriptures where they're communicating back and forth with each other. You've got a scripture where Jesus goes down to get baptized by John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit comes down like a dove. Jesus is obviously a distinct person. Holy Spirit joins him. And then the Father from heaven says, you know, this is my beloved son. You know, three distinct persons. When they communicate, they use words like I, me, mine. Okay? Uh, when they're going back and forth between each other, they use you, your, and yours. Jesus said, not my will, but thine be done. So there's, there's distinctions. Uh, in fact, there's some pretty fun scriptures as you go on um, that, that kind of illustrate this as well. Like uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. So... If Jesus and the Father are the exact same thing, Jesus would be mediating between himself and himself, which gets kind of awkward, right? <laughs> Genesis chapter 19, verse 24. Uh, this is kind of fun, too. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Wait, who did what? So, <laughs> uh, another one. Amos, uh, chapter 4, verse 11. I have overthrown... So the I here, as you're going to see at the very end of this verse, is the Lord. I say it, the Lord. I have overthrown some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a firebrand plucked out of the burning. Yet have you not returned unto me, saith the Lord. All right, so anyway... We can pass on with that. What we have here with the Trinity is three distinct persons, one God. Wrap your brain around that. 
You know, that's enough to cause the average Christian to fall out of his chair and have a seizure. It's, <laughs> that's one of those things I don't think we're going to fully get our head wrapped around uh, on this side of heaven. But that is the theology as set forth in the Bible. It is three distinct persons, one God. Okay? That's the Trinity. There you go. Easily could have blown two or three services just on that and all the different uh, attributes and all the ways that they express themselves and how we can understand it. Maybe someday we might do that. I don't know. Um, but that's, and that's what that is. So Jesus can, like we saw at the end of that last verse, can live to God, even though he is God. And so reeling it back in, rabbit trail over. We're still talking about dying with Christ, dying to sin, and living in newness of life. Verse 11 in Romans 6 says, Likewise, reckon, I'm sorry, likewise you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey its it. Obey it in its lust. So reckon. Do not let. This is a a mindset that we take upon ourselves. Consider yourself dead to sin. This is one of the aids, one of the ways that we fight this battle against sin. Consider yourself dead to sin. Okay? Ephesians chapter 4, verses 21 through 24, uh, Paul says something somewhat similar to the uh, Ephesians, he says, If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, speaking of Jesus, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your formal, former conduct the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. It's a choice, guys. It's a mindset and a choice. Um, Going on to verse 13, back to Romans. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness uh, to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. What in the world? Your members as instruments of righteousness or to sin. Okay. We, all, we all know that money is just a tool, right? It can be used for good, and it can be used for evil. Or, or here's a controversial one, a gun. Guns can be used to save lives. Guns can be used to unjustly take lives. The gun's not evil. The person holding the gun, that's the one we question, right? You know, it's just a tool. Well, our bodies... Our hands can be used to get us into a whole lot of evil, right? What are you setting your hands to? Are you using your hands for righteousness? Are you using them for evil? Your feet, you know, your feet can take you some really crazy places. My wife and I just got back from a super short uh, weekend vacation in Mexico last week. And um, there's, there's a saying that was on my mind the whole time we were there. Not that we would, but... <laughs> Don't, don't go to dumb places with dumb people at dumb times, okay? And really, that's what, in Mexico, that, you got to be careful, you're going to end up dead, right? <laughs> but, you know, but your feet can take you places. You can, they can take you to sin. They can take you to places where you are 
using them for righteousness. Your mind, what are you thinking about? What are you dwelling on? Are you setting your mind on the things of God and righteousness? And I think most of the fight happens right here, obviously, right? Your eyes, men. (laughs) Your eyes can be instruments of sin, right? Careful what you look at. Careful what you continue to look at. (laughs) You know what I mean? So, anyway, your members of your body, they can be used for righteousness or unrighteousness. Um, Verse 14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Okay, so now Paul is concluding that first question. Remember what the first question was? I know, we've been through so much now, you're like, I have no idea what the question was. The question was, should we continue in habitual sin that God's grace will abound so that God just looks that much more awesome and great? And then he answers, certainly not. And then he goes to show reasons why. We've died to sin. We don't want to be servants of sin or slaves to sin, but rather of righteousness. And so he finishes off that, and now he's going to go into the next logical conclusion. Well, if we're, if we're really saved by grace, then, okay, and here we go, verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? So I know it sounds very similar, but this isn't about glorifying God by sinning all the more. No, it's, it's more of a case of, well, you know, sin can be kind of fun at times, I guess. And uh, hey, if we're not under the law, can't we just... You know, we're under grace now, so can't we just sin because we're under grace? And of course, Paul responds again with that strong Greek idiom. He says, certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Um, Yikes. He brings in this idea of of slaves. And for the rest of chapter 6, he keeps hitting this word slave. What in the world? Well, slave sin can make you its slave. And this can be demonstrated in so many ways. It happens in the spiritual, and you can actually see it manifest a lot of times in the natural. Uh, One of the ways that you can... There's so many ways you can see it manifest in the natural. One would just be, okay, you're at home with the spouse, right? And uh, he or she does something or whatever that kind of gets on your nerves a little bit. And suddenly, you get this temptation to let them have it. Just going to use a few words, right? Just going to lob a little word hand grenade into the living room, you know? Just a little, little shot, you know? And what happens? You let it fly. And, uh, you know, it doesn't shut the situation down. No. Suddenly there's return fire. Suddenly there's a full-blown fight on your hands. And you think, well, okay, I'll just, I'll shut them down with the next comment. You know, and then we'll end this. Nope, nope. Your next sinful comment just made it way worse. And next thing you know, you're, you're totally being controlled by this thing. You're owned by some dumb thing that you said. Right? Amen? I mean, I've never said anything that would offend my wife. But I know all you heathens have. And so, <laughs> you know, another way would be lying. Of course, you know, you, you, you let loose that one little white lie, right? Little fib, nothing big. And next thing you know, through whatever circumstance in your life, 
that lie comes into question somehow, and now you have to let loose another one or two to support that one, to give more supporting story to that lie. And before you know it, your 50 lies down, and this thing has got you under its control. You are wrecked by your own words, right? So you can see it in the natural. Um, one, one instance of, of sin really putting a person into slavery. This is, this is intense, guys. Um, there are uh, uh, science. Okay, science is, is just starting to discover that there is a particular, particular actions that you do uh, that are oftentimes sinful uh, that will rewire your brain to want it even more. Now, that is certainly true with things like drugs, alcohol, tobacco, caffeine, Christian drug of choice, you know. <laughs> but, you know, when we, when we partake of these things, dopamine is released in your brain. It, it triggers that reward center in your brain, and dopamine is released. When dopamine is released, it triggers a cascade of other chemicals. Well, the drug I wanted to mention today uh, that is really wrecking the Christian community is porn. When you look at porn, when you partake in pornography, um, it releases that dopamine. In your, oh, this is crazy. And science is just figuring this out, right? Uh, it releases that dopamine, which then triggers a cascade of other chemicals. One of them is a protein called delta Fos B, and I have no idea if I'm, I'm pronouncing that right, because I've just seen it in print. But this uh, delta Fos B, uh, it, it is responsible for creating neural, uh, new neural pathways in your brain. It connects your actions with how you felt about that action. Okay? In fact, it's, it's received the nickname the addiction switch amongst the science community because of its powerful ability to create an addiction in people. You know, you do something that you don't like. You know, I, I just went up to the dentist and got a root canal. I didn't like that. And then your brain is like, note to self, don't go back there ever again. You know? <laughs> Conversely, though, you look at porn, those you really enjoyed it, and those neural pathways start getting built, okay? And it starts pulling you back. You rewire your brain to want it more and more and more. And then what's crazy, then as that dopamine is building up, your body then starts producing this other chemical, which the abbrevi abbreviation is C-R-E-B. I'm not going to try and pronounce it. You guys will laugh at me. But uh, this will slow the pleasure response in your brain, which causes tolerance to happen. So now you, you don't it's not like you need porn less. You need it just as much, if not more, because you're addicted to it. But now you're building a tolerance, which means you need more and more intense stuff. It's crazy. And our youth, oh, this is, this is terrifying. Our youth, uh, that reward center in their brain is two to four times more active than us adults, which means they are far more susceptible to these addictions than we are. So there you go. Paul calls this out 2,000 years ago. Science is just figuring it out. There are things that we do, sinful, that actually can enslave us. Now, obviously, this happens on, on a spiritual level as well. 
Okay, but it's just kind of fascinating to see that it actually happens on a physical plane as well. So anyway, um, verse 17, let's get back to this here. Verse 17, but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. So we were slaves to sin, right? Then we obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. What's that? It's a gospel. It's that simple. We obeyed the gospel. We trusted in Christ, um, and we were delivered. In verse 18, having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And so now we have a drive. You, know, you, you look back, I kind of mentioned this earlier, you look back at your old days, you didn't have a drive to righteousness, not until right before you got saved, right? When the Holy Spirit was actually working in you. You didn't have that drive. Now you do. You guys still screw up. You still sin, right? Paul does too. You still have these problems. But you have that inner drive for righteousness. And praise God, that's an evidence of your salvation. Okay? Take comfort in that. When you feel convicted of your sins, good. That's a, that's a good indication. Right? When you have that drive to do the right thing, that's a good indication. It's, it's, uh, I don't think that's a slam dunk argument for your salvation, but I think it definitely goes a long ways towards supporting it, right? So, uh, verse 19, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as we presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading more to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Okay, so he says he's speaking in human terms. He's mentioned that earlier in this book of Romans, and he's not saying there that he's not speaking via the Holy Spirit. He's just saying he's speaking in a way that (coughs) is accommodating language that we can all understand. And the whole master-slave illustration helps us quite well. And uh, so moving on to uh, verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin... You were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, you had no desire for righteousness. Verse 12, or 21, what fruit did you have then in the things which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. What fruit did you have in that sin, in that life that you once had that you have now died to? Okay, Paul, again, he's arguing for sanctification, for cleaning up your life. What fruit did you have? It was all bad fruit, and it led to death. Both physical death, but more specifically, eternal separation from God. And so he's, he's challenging us now to be slaves of righteousness. And I, this is the awkward spot I told you I was going to stop, because in the next wor- verse, he says uh, something to the effect of being slaves being slaves of God. And I know in this culture, actually worldwide for the most part, slavery carries some pretty bad baggage. You know, there's a lot of cruelty, whips and chains, and I mean, just horrible abuse that goes along with that. And, and uh, as the Bible refers to it as men stealing, you know, that slavery has a lot of negative baggage. But yet we're called to be slaves of God. What's going on here? We're called slaves of God, but yet in other parts of the Bible, we're called children of God. We're called the bride of Christ. 
So we're, we're, I want to I wanna stop here because next time I really want to explore that topic. There's a lot of misconceptions that need to be dealt with. Um, and there's, there's some parts to this that are so beautiful, it'll make your hair stand up. It's, it's, it's amazing what that really looks like. We have been purchased, okay? One of the ways, there was, there was a couple ways that a person would find themselves in slavery in the Old Testament. Either you were a slave of war, or you were somebody who had got themselves in debt over your head, and somebody had to purchase you out of debt. We were over our head in sin debt. And we couldn't pay it off. There was nothing we could do to earn it. And then Christ purchased us. That's a little hint as to where we're going to go next time. So let's go ahead and stop right there, guys. Father, thank you so much. Jesus, thank you for dying on that cross. We did not deserve that. If we got what we deserved, we would get the eternal separation of God that you talk about. We would get hell. And, I mean, we've earned it, but yet you've come down here and you live a life facing all the temptations we do. You don't sin a single time. And then you give your life to pay for our sins in the most horrific way. You have reconciled us to you and the Father. All right, friends, we'll stop right here. Now, uh, the next podcast I'm going to release, more than likely, will be uh, a podcast that is uh, not a, a sermon, but it will be uh, a conversation that I had with Pastor Jason Oaks uh, concerning scripture twisting that happens with uh, many of the cult movements out there. And we're going to be looking at... Uh, four, wait, three <laughs> different translations of the Bible that twist scripture. One from the Mormons, the Joseph Smith translation. We're going to be looking at the uh, New World translation from the uh, uh, Watchtower or Jehovah's Witnesses. And then something else that's quite fascinating. Uh, we're going to be looking at the Passion Translation. This is a translation that's not even complete yet, but it's coming from your uh, friends from the New Apostolic Reformation camp, the kind of Word of Faith camp, hyper-charismatic camp. Uh, it is taking the Bible and putting a, a, a very uh, hyper-charismatic, apostolic twist to it. And that's kind of a train wreck as well. And uh, like I... <laughs> started stuttering there a moment ago, there is a fourth translation. We're also going to be talking about the Seventh-day Adventists clear word translation or clear word Bible. Uh, so uh, look forward to that. And there are other podcasts uh, uh, that are in the wings here uh, that are coming up where uh, we're going to get back to the apologetics. And uh, I, you know, I know, I know a lot of you really like these sermons, so I'll keep putting them up too. Uh, but we're going to get back to where this podcast started and be talking apologetics. So <laughs> look forward to that. I love you guys. And we'll see you next week. Sing it out loud.